this should be a thing and people should be doing this. And like for long, um, the nonprofit sector has like not held itself to the level of like accountability that it should be, right? And so, I mean, if you look at it, right, is if you look at the top five for-profit companies, they were all founded after 1975. Right. If you look at the top five non-profit companies, I believe the youngest one was founded in like 1910 or something, yeah. right? And so there's like there's like deep-seated, um, like deep-seated, like backwards mentality here. Yeah. And so like, yes, there is an element of too good to be true, but the reality is like people are not doing this and like that's something that we want to like wake people up to like, hey, this needs to happen. It needs to happen in a much more efficient and high quality way. And like we're one of the options or one of the people that are trying to move that movement forward. That was Yash Kotari, product and growth at Give Directly, an organization on a mission to reshape international giving through direct cash transfer payments. My name is Asanga Senaratna and this is Lantern, a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. I first heard Yash's story at a One for the World event at the University of Pennsylvania. He was talking about his journey from the tech to the not-for-profit space and his work at Give Directly. And there were two things that stood out, stood out about his talk. Firstly, how the hell can you just give cash to the poor? How does that work? It really went against everything I'd seen in international development before. When I thought international development, I thought building schools, water pipes, and goats. So how was giving cash the solution? That was the first question. The second, this guy had founded and was CEO of an analytics startup that had raised $1 million in seed funding. It was backed by Y Combinator. Life seemed good, and from all the glitz and glamour of the tech and startup world, he moved to the not-for-profit space. So I knew I wanted to explore all of this further. So I went up to Yash after the talk and asked him if he wanted to be on our show, Lantern. Uh, he kindly agreed. And so this is our chat at GiveDirectly headquarters in New York City. Uh, we talked about a range of things from finding your purpose, his journey from the tech to the not-for-profit space, learning from best practices in the for-profit sector, intelligence tests and impact work, recruiting the best talent into not-for-profits, and of course, give directly his mission to reshape international giving by direct cash transfers. Enjoy. Hey guys, my name is Yash Katari. I work on the um, product and growth team here at Give Directly, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about GD in a second. Um, what am I passionate about? A bunch of different things. I think at the core of, of what I think about, like, there's two things that really come to what, what I really care about. The first is, like, relationships with people. Yeah. Um, and people are kind of at, like, the core of my life and everything that I, yeah. like, center my decisions around. And second is uh, working on something meaningful. I realize that's a little bit vague, but, like, figuring out, like, hey, what does meaningful mean? Mm -hmm. And where are the places where I can make the world a little bit of a better place? So where did that, like, um, interest in doing meaningful work come from? So I think it, um, interestingly, it came from a place of not doing meaningful oh, yeah. work. Yeah. And so um, my senior year of college, or my junior year of Penn, I had started a company with one of my best friends um, at the time. And we, it was a tech startup, and the idea was we were doing data analytics for retail stores. Um, and this was like we were like 20, 21 years old, and we were excited, like, hey, what if we could build a company, you know, raise money from investors, like have customers, like that feels like a pretty cool journey and like building something of our own. Um, and so we did that for our senior year, did well enough that like when we graduated, we went to the West Coast, we did an accelerator there, uh, raised a bunch of money from um, investors and then moved back to New York. Um, and about a year and a half ago uh, from today, like I had this moment of like, 
what am I doing? Um, and I was like feeling very lonely and very kind of like in a space that I didn't want to be in. And I was like, I don't feel, I'm going through all the stress of starting something on my own and I don't feel like I'm solving something that I actually care about. And so like, that's kind of where the desire to, to work on something a little bit more meaningful came from. Wow, okay. So was that like a kind of cascade of moments or was it just one, was it a trip or was it yeah. something that sparked that? I think there are a few pieces. I think it was gradual, right? I don't think it was just like a, I woke up one day and I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah, I think yeah. it was like a, hey, I'd been through the slog for a while and starting my own thing and running my own thing with only one other person. Like there was just like a lot to it. And like over time started thinking like, hey, why am I really doing this? Like, why is this important to me? And like 10 years from now, even if this becomes like a very successful company, do I actually feel good and happy about it? Um, and my answer to that was like, no, I don't. Um, and I felt like I had that like fiduciary responsibility to my investors of like, hey, if I need to be ready to work on this for 10 years. And I was like, okay, this means that like maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Um, and then post to that, in terms of like actually finding out what I wanted to work on, mm -hmm. I went through a lot of like soul searching in that like I did something called a Vipassana meditation retreat, which is like oh, a, yeah. you, you've yeah. heard of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've a bit of meditation. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. We, yeah, yeah. Meditation's been like a big theme of my life in like oh, the last yeah, couple cool, of years, cool, cool. and so we, we can talk about that yeah, as yeah. well. Uh, but I did like a Vipassana, which is like a 10-day silent meditation retreat. Mm -hmm. um, and in that, like started uncovering a little bit more about like what I wanted. And then after that, I went on a solo trip to Europe for about a month and a half yeah, and like yeah. all I did was really like read, reflect and meditate and try and figure out what I wanted. I'm yeah. curious, what, what kind of stuff were you reading? Yeah, so my favorite books, so a couple of books. One was The Road to Character by David Brooks. Yeah. Um, so A, I would recommend uh, just see if you like David Brooks. My favorite article of all time is called The Moral Bucket List. Mm -hmm. um, yeah which is like, if you like that article, you should read The Road to Character. For me, it was just like, it's like short stories about people and how they found their own like meaning of success in their lives yeah. through history, right? It goes back to like ancient, like people, like ancient philosophers and like seeing like how they found meaning in their lives. Um, so that's one. Another is A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Okay. Um, and that's pretty much about a person who like went through concentration camps and like obviously went through a lot of suffering, but like in the suffering is where he found a lot of meaning of life. Um, and like that was pretty special. And the third, the last book I'll recommend is um, When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalaniti. It's a Stanford neurosurgeon who was diagnosed with terminal cancer um, a few years ago. And he writes this book through the perspective of someone who's going to pass away and like kind of his life story and how he's thinking about things and death and life and all of these things. And it was, it was pretty special. Wow. wow, wow. I think I've someone else recommended me to have a look at that book so yeah, I should definitely get onto it. Definitely. Awesome book. It's a great book. <laughs> so you went through this whole, um, you had the trip to Europe, did some meditation reflection. Did you come out being like I'm really passionate about working on this issue or, you, or were you just like I just generally want to do good? Yeah, great question. Um, I came out Actually, the, the most valuable thing I came out of that trip with was this like document I wrote for myself, which is like, hey, what do I believe are like my life goals and principles and who is the type of person I want to be? Um, and that outlined a bunch of different things of like things I want to be working on, the type of person I want to start becoming. And in that included like the type of career I want to pursue. Um, and so as I thought about that, it got a little bit more, I got a little bit more specific, specifically about like development um, and impact that like could probably be traced to like my roots of like growing back growing up in India and just like having seen a lot of it around me and like inequality and like wanting to like mm. play my small role in helping fix that. Mm. Um, and so when I came back to New York, 
I had three things that I cared about in terms of my next job. The first was um, working with really smart people. I still like believed in that and wanted to like personally grow from that. Two was working at a company in like the impact space. And so, like, impact development, like, ideally international poverty, like, that was what I was really focused on, but somewhat open-minded in that, like, hey, if I can't find the perfect opportunity here, I can find something else, like, that is generally, like, working towards making the world a better place. And then third was I wanted to be in New York because I live with my best friends here. And so, like, use that as, like, my framework to... All right, cool. So, from that, you landed at Give Directly. Um, so could you tell us more about your role there and what exactly Give Directly does? Sure. So um, Give Directly is a nonprofit, um, and we do, as the name suggests, we send money to people who are poor in East Africa. Mm. Um, and that's the idea, is like we send cash, no strings attached. It's not microfinance, it's like literal grants. Um, and there's, people always ask, right, their first reaction is like, oh, don't people spend it on like alcohol, tobacco, or some other things? Um, and the answer is no, right? There's just so much data about like cash and how it works. And so many like studies over several years that shows that like handing out these transfers like really works, people use it responsibly and they use it on things that actually matter, not just in a short term way, but also in a long term way. Um, that, that it's like a really compelling proposition. And I think the other, other couple of things are, it, it's really efficient, right? Like by building our operations that give directly end to end, we like deliver the most dollar from the, from the donor to the recipient's hands. And we use mobile money to transfer all of that. And then the third is like a respect thing, right? We, we, we let recipients choose from themselves. Like rather than deciding, hey, we're sitting here in this like nice conference room in New York and deciding this mm -hmm. is how people should be spending money. Mm -hmm. Like let people decide for themselves how they want to. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about Give Directly. My role here, um, I'm right now thinking a lot about how do we grow our business with people who donate less than $10,000 to, to the organization. And so that's a little bit more like consumer focused, like marketing-esque role. And it's like, okay, what are the different types of like products we want to build to engage with people? So like one of the things we built a little while ago is called Give Directly Live. And it's like a live database of all of our recipients as they hit kind of like as they hit our backend ser servers yeah. and you can like see how are they spending the money and what are they spending it on. Um, but also like, hey, the holiday season's coming up. How do we want to engage with our existing donors? Do we want to do like paid yeah. search? Like how do we want to like develop different acquisition strategies to get like the right mix of donors to grow the company with, with, within that segment? Right, right. right. So a question comes up because um, in one of our first episodes, um, we talked to Morgan Kogel, who's the CEO of One Girl. Um, and we were talking a little bit about kind of the charity hagglers you see on the street. So is Give Directly purely looking at digital acquisition channels or is it physical as well? Yeah, we're open. Yeah. Um, though like we are very um, bearish on those kind of like acquisition channels. Like there just doesn't seem to be a clear way to like demonstrate success to like know, okay, if I like talk to someone on the street, how likely is it that they actually come back and donate? It's like really hard to like attribute success. Um, B, like everything I've seen or everything I've like personally encountered or even read about in terms of like that strategy, it seems pretty ineffective. Like people don't actually, aren't actually invested. And so look, digital seems to be like a faster, more scalable, more efficient way of acquiring more customers and like the right type of customers or what we call like qualified leads. Yeah. And so like we move in that direction, but we're like pretty open-minded, right? So for example, we started doing a few more like speaking engagements where like some folks who are like senior on our leadership team will like go out to different companies and give talks. And like that's a different acquisition model that's a little bit more physical, but like we've seen clear return on investment from that. And so that's why it makes a lot of sense for us. And just for those who don't know, what's a qualified lead? Yeah, sure. <laughs> 
question. A qualified lead, essentially, right, you can have all different sorts of, like, customers who yeah. visit your website. And yeah. so, like, I could acquire you from some, like, random Facebook, like, group yeah. that has nothing to do with GiveDirectly. Mm -hmm. And so that's someone who, like, likes, let's say, like, sofas, right? Like yeah. sofas on furniture and I can like yeah. write a message about, oh, you should give directly and like maybe that person comes to our website. They come with like zero context mm -hmm. and like no intention of actually donating to a nonprofit and so like have a much lower likelihood to like actually convert into a donor. Okay. Whereas if I advertise or if I like get you off of GiveWell's website, which is like a charity evaluator, um, that's already someone who's thinking about nonprofits, who's thinking about effective altruism, who's thinking how can I give effectively, and then when they come to give directly to website, they're much more likely to donate. And so that's how we call qualified leads, is like people who are much likelier to donate because it's much better traffic in line with like the type of people we want to be attracting to our website. So are you guys going after people who would traditionally donate to like large NGOs, so like your Red Crosses, World Visions, or is it a different type of segment? Yeah, I think I think it works across the gamut. I think our gen the way we think about like our target audience right now is folks who are like very focused on like data evidence and have like a very strong like analytical background. Mm -hmm. And so that typically ends up being folks um, in like urban areas uh, working in industries like tech or finance, where like you're right, like it's it's people who are really thinking about what's like the end goal of my dollar? Like how much impact does it actually create? Not so much that like, hey, I just want to give $5 or $10 to this charity because I'm, sure. I'm feeling bad about something. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, so like that's how we think about our target market. Some of that means that it's like folks who give to the Red Cross and UNICEF and some of these other organizations. Um, but some of that also means we're tapping into a whole new set of folks who, who haven't been giving before or who have like just come out of school and are starting to think about how can they give effectively. Mm -hmm. So where do you see, I would call it donation, like people's donation dollar, mm -hmm. with the rise of like social enterprises and when you can, when you go to the cafe and you know, okay, my coffee is going to help, you know, farmers in the developing world and then mm -hmm. I'm buying toilet paper or water that's, you know, providing health and sanitation and that starts factoring in, into your kind of mental model of how much you give. Is that a problem you're seeing or do you, is that an issue you think? Yeah, uh, can, can you help me just like clarify a little yeah, bit yeah, in yeah. terms of like when you say the problem, what do you see as like the problem there? Um, I think more specifically that people um, have a set amount that they're willing to kind of donate or they put aside to donate. And now with the rise of social enterprise is that everyday purchases that traditionally wouldn't have counted to that now count towards. So you have less money going to traditional charities or yeah. NGOs. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good call. Um, it's not something that like I've like seen as like a major trend that's like has me concerned or worried right now. I think we're still focused on like the low hanging fruit of like, hey, people are donating a lot of money to other charities or they have like a lot of disposable income that they're not putting to more like effective charitable means, yeah. right? And so it's like, hey, we we just need to like start just by like taking a piece out of that out of that pie. Like, I think if you look at it, um, you have, like, thousands and hundreds and billions of dollars going to these, like, larger organizations or, like, a big piece of this, like, social impact pie that people are donating to. And, like, a very small fraction of that is going to effective um, giving organizations. And so, like, that's what we're more focused on is, like, how can we convert people from, like, the other places that they're giving to and give to us rather than the, like, hey, on a bigger picture, this money is moving away into social enterprise. Right. Sure. And what, what do you mean exactly by effective giving? 
Yeah, so effective giving um, comes from this like um, movement that we've seen called effective altruism, and the notion is like being very thoughtful about the impact of your dollar. Yeah. And so it's saying, okay, for like every dollar I give to an organization, how much impact is actually coming out of it, yeah. right? And like holding um, companies accountable to being able to show you that data and show you how efficiently that money is being transferred. And so that's something that we like really pride ourselves on is like we are very efficient and we can show you the impact of your dollar and like why it's better than a lot of other organizations. And so like that's the notion of like effective giving is like backed by numbers and data. Right, right. And so it seems like give directly is really data orientated and driven. Is that something that's common amongst the NFP space. And I'm kind of interested in how you brought your experience, um, you know, working on a startup mm -hmm. and then, you know, going through Y Combinator mm -hmm. to the not-for-profit space. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, so um, data orientation, like the data orientation, like being very like metrics driven is starting to become more of a movement. But, and, and we're seeing that specifically with organizations around this like effective altruism movement, but it's still, like a very, very small piece of the pie. And so like we're still really at the early stages and that's a lot of what we kind of like market and pitch to, to people who want to give, right? It's like we do everything like a for-profit company and we're built in that way. In terms of my experiences, kind of like builds off of that. The way GiveDirectly is built um, from other organizations I've seen, either from like building my own or like other folks in YC or other companies that I've like met and talked to, um, we're built very much like a for-profit and in many ways like a tech company, right? And so like a lot of it is, okay, what's the accountability? Like what are the numbers that we want to hit? Why is this worth spending our time over something else? Like how are we going to prioritize that? How are we thinking about talent? Like there's all of like across a variety of different um, fields. Like we're really thinking like how do we hold ourselves accountable and execute at the highest possible level? Yeah. Um, and then my, my kind of like background specifically in terms of like analytics and data, um, yeah, you're seeing a lot of that, right? So for example, we're thinking about, okay, um, we want to run A-B tests on our emails and we want to be a little bit more intelligent about how we're like testing emails to, our, to the 20,000 donors who are on our mailing list right now. How do we like effectively segment that? How do we figure out what type of tests we want to run? Where is it going to be the highest leverage? And then like, how are you actually going to get that data and make sure it's like statistically significant and like relevant to making decisions? Yeah. Um, and so like we're do that's just one specific example, but doing a lot of that of like, hey, how do you run like intelligent tests to see whether something works or not? I can give you another example actually, now that I think of it. Um, we had this idea for like some app we want to build for our donors where they can like instantly instantly donate. Um, and I was like, hey, everything I've seen from like startups and product, like let's not spend all the engineering costs and time to build out this fancy like UI. Let's start by building something we call the minimal viable product or MVP which is like, let's just test it and see, let's test the assumption that people want an instant way to donate. Mm -hmm. And so like what, what I did was like I created essentially like a Venmo link that right. automatically linked to GiveDirectly and you could create a little app button on your, on your homepage and it took me 15 minutes. I'm like, hey, let's just start with the GiveDirectly team here and see of the 15 people here, does anyone actually regularly do this? Because like we're people who care about it and want to do it. And you see that like, oh, like surprisingly people are not doing it as often as we wanted. Let's now not spend all that engineering and design cost of like okay. building out this fancy app. But like that's an example of like doing MVP, testing, mm -hmm. seeing if things work and then iterating accordingly. And quickly, just jumping back as well, could you quickly explain A-B testing for those who uh, might sure. not know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
good, good call. Um, so A-B testing is the idea of like running hyper quick experiments with two versions yeah. um, or multiple versions to see to see from the data like what works versus what doesn't work. So like a very famous A-B test is like what Amazon did with the color of their of their like add to cart button. And so what they would do is at the same time, they would show 10 different customers, 10 different colors of their add to cart button. And they see, hey, which one like leads to highest likelihood of conversion. And so like after running enough of those with a big enough population size, you can see like which color actually works the best. And so the idea is like, let's get data to figure out which works the best and let's actually run experiments rather than just making guesses about what works versus what doesn't. Right. Those like, uh, I guess startup frameworks and methodologies like, you know, customer development, minimal viable product, do you apply them directly in the same fashion as you would do with a regular startup or in the for-profit space? Or is there any tweaks you have to do because you're working in the impact space? Yeah, I actually don't know how many tweaks there are. There's, like, there's yeah. some natural differences that you're gonna have, which is like the nature of people who are coming onto your website are coming to donate. And so um, like your checkout, I, I was just working on like our checkout flow and checkout optimization and um, it's a little bit different because you're not buying a product. And so yeah. it's like, okay, how do we like tailor the checkout flow for that? And how can we make it even more streamlined for donors? Mm -hmm. But you're still taking best practices from the for-profit world. So like part of the thing we're doing with the checkout flow is working with a few advisors from like people who do like Google checkout and having them like give us advice about like, how does this work? What are like the best practices we want to keep here? How do we want to move these screens like back and forth? Where do we want to ask these questions and all that type of yeah. stuff? So still lending a lot from the for-profit space, yeah. though there is some like structural difference from, from just like, operating the impact space. I want to jump back to, so the give directly model specifically. So if I say give $10, can you walk us through the kind of chain to where the person you're helping gets, gets yeah. the cash? How does that work? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because the whole point is it's extremely simple. The way that chain works, you give $10. Um, Right now, according to our efficiency numbers, 8.8 .8 of those dollars are going directly to the recipient. Sure. The 1.2 dollars, and, and we own the operation end-to-end, -end, so we're not giving this money to any local partner in yeah. East Africa, yeah. right? Like, we have our own team in Uganda, Rwanda, and Kenya, mm -hmm. who we then deploy and actually get, like, deploy the capital to. Mm -hmm. um, that, the other 1.2 overhead of those, like, dollars is going towards um, our team in Uganda is going towards um, like our data team. So building out the infrastructure, building out, being able to like monitor the pipes and making sure we're like anti-fraud, anti, -fraud, anti like, like all of those things mm -hmm. um, is like the actual transfer cost. So mobile money, right? If we send it through MPES or MTN, they charge us a certain percent to just be able to send it. And so like those are the like overhead costs. It's not like going to be hey, we have like a staff of 30 or a staff of 50 or a staff of 100 and then we're giving to another NGO who then has their own staff, who then is also spending on their own fundraising means, who also has their own management, who then... Mm -hmm. So, right, like it's, it's a lot more streamlined because we own it from beginning to end. Okay. So how does the person receive the cash? Is it like physical cash or how does that work? Yeah, so it's all through mobile money. Okay. Um, and so the idea is we actually... We either use a phone that they already have or we give them a, a cell phone. Mm -hmm. um, and then you load the money onto their SIM card or onto their number. Um, and in East Africa, we have something like, I think, 97% mobile money penetration. Right. And so that means there's a lot of agents who accept mobile money. And it's so like what these people can then do, they'll, they'll get a text notification when money has been transferred into their mobile money account. And they can take their phone to a mobile money agent and actually cash it out for real, actual physical bills. Um, and so we found that to work way better for, for us from obviously from like a security and fraud perspective yeah. But it's also super efficient to be able to just like send that straight digitally to to our recipients 
and what has the dynamic changed? So like if you go into a community and um, you start handing out grants, um, is the kind of the way that the local economy works or the marketplace, does that change? Because there's this influx of cash suddenly yeah. or, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Something that we're actually studying right now on like a macro level, how does the like, um, at the village level, like how do things change? Um, and so like, right, there's potential risk of like, hey, do, do markets get a little bit more inflated? Like, do we see prices go up when like the day of cash transfers come out? Um, don't have like conclusive evidence on that yet, but like, we're doing a little bit more like analysis and trying to see what's going on there. Some of the things we're thinking about to like mitigate for that is like doing more regular cash day, payout days, right? So rather than doing on a month to month basis when we send money, we send up money every week. And so there's less like flexibility to, for, for vendors or merchants to be able to um, like inflate their prices for this like payout today. Right. Um, and so like there's a bunch of things we're thinking about there and there are some like interesting macro effects. It's just like been hard to actually be able to like measure that in a high quality way. And so we actually have like researchers who we're working with who are going to help us like get to better conclusions on that stuff. Okay, sure. And is it the same amount of money that you give to each recipient or does it vary? Yeah, so we have a couple of different what we call programs. So what GiveDirectly started with and was operating for several years exclusively was standard cash transfers where we sent $1,000 over, I believe it is three months yep. um, to our recipients. We've now started um, another program called Universal Basic Income. So we're actually running the biggest basic income pilot in history. Um, and basic income is this notion of providing someone with like a month or like a, a regular installment of mm -hmm. cash inflow mm -hmm. for a long period of time mm -hmm. and seeing like how does it impact like the type of decisions they make, like the type of jobs they take, how hard they work, like what they do in their leisure, like all these things. Um, and so we're doing it over 12 years um, in, a, in a few villages in, in, in Kenya, which we're pretty pumped about. Um, and then there are a few other programs that we haven't yet launched, or actually one of them that we just launched, which is for like relief for folks um, mm -hmm. who are affected by uh, Hurricane Harvey here in Texas. Um, and that has a little bit of a different amount where we're giving $1,500 because that's a little bit more relevant to the population there. And so like, we're like pretty adaptable and open, mm -hmm. keep, keep kind of like our transfer model open, but we have a few different programs that, that we use. Okay, cool. And then how do you decide who uh, gets, gets the grants in the first place? Yeah, so... Um, we had, what we do is our first stage is data collection or census, where our field officers actually go out into the field and collect some base level like demographic data. And so it's like, hey, how many kids live in this household? How many beds do they have? Do they have a kitchen, et cetera, et cetera. And so we collect a lot of baseline data. And then we've built an algorithm that then takes that baseline data um, and then comes up with a measure of like how eligible this person is for a transfer based off how needy their situation is. Um, and so like that's, that's something that we have like built and then it returns, okay, this person is going to get a cash transfer or, or is not. Yeah. Um, but to be honest, what we're finding for most of the time is like they're almost always eligible. Okay. And so like we're moving towards a model where it becomes more saturated, where we give everyone cash, right? Okay. Because it is, it is, these are like very poor communities. Yeah. Um, and it just makes a lot of sense to kind of like saturate the, the, the villages. Okay. Um, I guess two points there. Um, one, what's, could you, um, go into more depth about why it's important to saturate the villages. Um, and then secondly, I don't know if you can disclose this, but what are the kind of key factors you're running in that algorithm? So what are the determinants of... Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, so the first, on the first point, um, saturation, I think there's like a couple of reasons. 
One is uh, we've been thinking about it from like an efficiency point of view of like, hey, if 90 to 95% of folks are going to be eligible anyways using our algorithm, can we streamline it and actually save on that like 5 to 10% clip by like not running the algorithm in the first place, right? So there's like an efficiency argument to be made there of like, hey, we can actually just objectively reach more people with the same amount of capital by like deploying in this way. Um, so that's like one argument of like why we're thinking about saturation. Another is like, as we like wait for more evidence about like what happens on the macro level, but like hey, from like a ten, like from like a social community po point of view, does it make sense to like move towards a saturation model? Is that mitigate for like other concerns that that we might have? Um, in terms of like the actual algorithm, so I I can't share like the specifics of of what's going on there, um, but like one example of something we had done in the past and looked at were like roofs, and so it was I believe like grass versus um, like iron roofs. And we found that to be like a good indicator of like how needy someone's situation was. Um, and so like that's an example of like once upon a time we used like Google Maps data or Google Earth data to, to identify whether someone had a grass thatched roof or an iron roof. And you were able to use that to say, okay, how eligible or ineligible is this person? Okay, okay. And it's that a matter of just the, the thatched roof being a better protection against the environment or yeah. what's the kind of opposite so the grass was like much worse and it's much cheaper um, like fell apart pretty regularly like water drained through it and the idea behind that was not the roof itself but what was that typically found households that had grass thatched roofs were of had like more children and less space or did not have mattresses or all of these other like indicators of what we thought made like a needy situation since then we've like left that model to go into something a lot more sophisticated, but just like kind of as an example of like, hey, what are some of the things you might look at to, to determine whether someone's eligible or not? I know when you guys launched a few years ago, um, there was a lot, there was a bit of controversy and criticism about it's kind of, you know, give directly and direct cash transfer payments is like the hot thing right now, but is it the most effective way to address poverty? Mm -hmm. um, I guess a few of the arguments that were being thrown around were kind of um, that conditional cash transfers still had merit. So stuff that's happened in like Brazil and Mexico with um, having conditions in terms of uh, children attending schools and completing um, medical checkups, which improve like health and education outcomes. Um, and then also people arguing that kind of to address the structural problems of poverty, we still need to focus on, you know, building schools or clinics. Um, what is your kind of response to that? Sure. Yeah, um, yeah I think there's, there's, there's a couple of angles there. A, I think on unconditional cash transfers, there's like a tremendous amount of evidence that shows that UCTs really work, mm -hmm. right? And so like, happy like point you in that direction or you can go onto our website where we have like a page that shows just all of the evidence about unconditional cash transfers. But there's just, like, a lot of evidence that shows that like unconditional cash transfers like really, really work. Oftentimes better than conditional tra cash transfers. But again, I can, I, I, I can point you to some more data on that. Um, I think at the point on like the structural change, um, yeah, I think we're just so far away from the place of like building like a international NGO with like eight different arms that then branch out into like different subsidiaries and different local vendors who are then yeah. building a school is just so far more inefficient than us sending cash right now. Right, right. right. So there is like a structural component of like, hey, you want to be building 
certain pieces or certain like communal goods and like there is a need for that but like when we compare like the options that a donor has which is like giving to an organization that then has like eight subsidiaries who are then going to build a school versus like giving directly and us having this like full cash like streamlined situation mm-hmm. like one piece of that argument is just like so overwhelms the other right in terms of like our efficiency the impact that we see um, and the dollars that we can actually send to the recipient so feel free to like press me a little bit more if you if you don't feel like you're getting a good answer to this but like just like that scale is so one-sided that like i think it's like pretty obvious at least right now where like effective dollars should yeah, be going to yeah. so if you say that direct cash transfers can alleviate say like extreme poverty after that is cash then again the answer or do we have to turn to like the more structural issues yeah i don't know right i think part of it is like let's um let's start working toward a world where we know like we need to move towards sure. um and i think even at give directly we have like a pretty open mind as we collect more data and see more about what works and as yeah. situations and circumstances change yeah. like we're open minded and being like an effective way of giving right i think that's yeah. really how we think about ourselves as well and so like even the basic income pilot that we're running like a lot of that thesis is like hey there's just no data about whether a basic income works or not like we don't have necessarily like, a very strong view on like basic income is going to be like this great use of cash and is going to completely transform the economy is really important but we're like hey everyone's talking about it and we think it's going to be the future but like no one has collected data on it like let us be the folks who like actually can collect the data and form whether or not we should be doing this or not all right, right and then when you say us um is that you as give directly conducting that research or is it you know independent body yeah yeah independent body or just like as a global community right like if if we realize right for example governments like realize or as we move to a world that is more automated yeah. like governments start really seriously considering whether they want to implement a basic income or not so for example the indian government like the us government's talked about the canadian government like all these different like major economies and major very like populous countries like mm-hmm. influencing like those discussions and helping them come to an answer of like yeah. whether they want to implement like important social policies or not i think is like a big piece of like what we want to like help inform and work towards right 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 and then with the payments what's the sustainability of them uh do you see that do you keep giving the payments after the first lot or is do people transition into work or they've been able to you know access the facilities that means they can you know fend for themselves or yeah so again few different models here so for basic income we're giving continuous payments over like 12 years and so that's like the model and we don't yet have data about like what works versus what doesn't work and what's really happening we just launched our program and are only starting our like full scale like program in terms of enrolling folks um and then for cash transfers we deploy $1000 over 3 months. Yeah. Um we've seen people like even in a long term way we've seen I believe it is a 40% increase in like assets over the long term and so you're seeing like impact that may seem temporary because you're giving cash and one go in a short period of time but you're seeing that kind of those like that influence in a very long term way like the type of like life these people are leading. leading. So it's it almost seems too good to be true like you just give cash there's no kind of messing around with building infrastructure and you can alleviate this massive problem why aren't more people doing it or advocating yeah so yeah i don't know right <laughs> yeah. no seriously and that's like a lot of what we we talk about is like 
this should be a thing and people should be doing this. And like for long, um, the nonprofit sector has like not held itself to the level of like accountability that it should be, right? And so, I mean, if you look at it, right, is if you look at the top five for-profit companies, they were all founded after 1975. Right. If you look at the top five nonprofit companies, right. I believe the youngest one was founded in like 1910 or something, yeah. right? And so there's like there's like deep-seated, um, like deep-seated, like backwards mentality here. Yeah. And so like, yes, there is an element of too good to be true, but the reality is like people are not doing this and like that's something that we want to like wake people up to. Like, hey, this needs to happen. It needs to happen in a much more efficient and high quality way. And like we're one of the options or one of the people that are trying to move that movement forward. Yeah, cool. yeah so saying that now, what role do traditional charities play or like large NGOs? Do they need to innovate? Is their model of aid um, still important? Does that still play a role? Where do you yeah, I, I think it's important that they ask these questions, right? Um, and I think that's the bar they should be holding themselves to is like asking like, hey, are we performing effectively? What is the impact of the dollar? And how can we make sure we are like, offering a very effective means of like helping people who don't who, who need the help right, right. Um, and so like look that sometimes might mean like hey they're building these like structural bodies and like that's important and like that's fine what we're saying is like make sure that like you as a donor are holding these organizations accountable about whether they're spending the money well and whether your dollar is like actually going to places that need it um, and so like yes big NGOs or big nonprofit organizations like may still have a role to play here if they can adapt. And if they can't, they don't deserve to be around. I think like, that's like really the, the, the like, core piece of the message. Um, and what role do you see like, big institutional players like the World Bank or the UN playing in the whole UBI direct cash transfer? Yeah, I don't have as strong of a view on this as I'm not like, as involved on like, the UBI specific yeah, sure. like, piece of this. Um, but look, I think I think like the UN, for example, like has an important role to play here in terms of like um, you're seeing across different governments them thinking about like the same idea, like how can the UN as well promote the notion of like collecting cash or sorry collecting data about whether cash works or not to help influence like other countries, other economies, and their own social policies. And so I think there's like a little bit of a role to play there in helping facilitate that conversation and that data collection. With those organizations, is it reliant on people inside them to innovate? Or is it, you know, bringing in young talent um, to do that for them? Where does that come from? Or is it a push from like donors? Um, I, I don't have a strong view. I do think like, what can we do yeah. um, if we're not joining these organizations yeah. is we can, we can, as donors, like hold them accountable to this bar. Yeah. Right, I think like that's where the push really needs to originate from, mm -hmm. and in terms of how they actually adapt to it, I don't really have a view on like what's better versus not. Sure. Just that, like, I think it's important that it needs to happen, and I think the people who hold the most leverage there are the people who are giving the money. Mm -hmm. And then, with I guess making impact more directly, so for students, say university, in terms of looking at like your exit opportunities, particularly at somewhere say like Wharton. Um, it can feel very narrow, like banking, finance, consulting, or you know, starting your own thing. Yep. What's your advice if, um, if you're passionate about making a difference, making an impact, what should you do? Yeah, I think there are a few things. I think one is like realize that opportunities are not as limited as they seem, right? Like really reflecting on what you want 
Um, and, th and this is what I talk to tell when I speak to a few students whenever they ask me this kind of question is like figure out what you want and then go after that and like the world is your oyster when it comes to that. Mm -hmm. There isn't only like finance consulting and tech available to like everyone in the world, right? Mm -hmm. you, there are all sorts of permutations of the role of, of different roles and of different opportunities and different mm -hmm. industries. And so mm -hmm. as, if you can like repel that like peer pressure to join one of these industries and like really reflect on what you want and like find your own niche, like I think yeah. that's like the the advice I would give in terms of like pushing yourself to be able to look for that. Right, right. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on say earning to give versus um, I guess directly contributing all of your time say working for a not-for-profit or a social enterprise because um, you know when I talk to some of my friends they say you know I'll go off and work at this firm and I'll earn X amount of dollars yeah. and I can donate this amount of time and you know I'll work on a pro bono project yeah. um, run a marathon here and yeah. there for charity and life's good. Um, is there a role for both of those things or do you think it, and then the other thing that people say is that I'll learn so many more skills um, than if I say I started in the not-for-profit space if I work in the private sector. Yeah, um, yeah sure. Um, well, a couple of things. One, I would say read this website called 80,000hours.org which like kind of goes through this like exact argument of like, hey, should I join versus just make money to join, uh, make money to give later? I think absolutely, there's no way like any of this functions without both of those being true, right? Like there needs to be a certain set of people who like earn enough money to like give and like sustain and to like move actual money across. And there needs to be enough like high quality talent in the industry that like does the type of work we're doing, which is like pushes the bar and holds accountability and moves organizations forward. Um, my reaction to people, especially people like coming out of school who are like, hey, I want to make an impact, but I just want to make a lot of money or I want to go into banking to like be able to cover for that is like um, really trying to get to whether they believe that or they using that as like a convenient like excuse to like get out of feeling bad from this. Sure. Right, like for people who genuinely believe that, then go into like different programs where you're like ready to pledge X amount of your income or X amount of the money you make mm -hmm. um, to a charity every year or like hold yourself accountable. But like the thing I react to is like these people don't necessarily actually believe that attitude. Whereas like it is actually, if you're ready to hold yourself accountable and you can commit to it starting tomorrow, then like that actually makes a lot of sense. On the topic of like skills, um, that one I have like a little bit less of a view on. I think there is a world where like, hey, you want to build up certain skills so you can be valuable when you go into the nonprofit industry. But again, I think the piece of this is that, that is important is like, are you holding yourself accountable to like actually wanting to do that um, and are in some ways like showing that you're going to do that, right? So whether it is like, hey, you want to join like a consulting firm and it's like very clear you want to build the skills, but no, you're going to also commit like 15 hours a week to like working with some organization um, in whatever capacity you want and like yeah. contributing in, in, in some way there. Mm. I just thinking about that I heard on a panel just I think it was a one for the world panel actually uh, like two days ago okay. um, and uh, I think it was a consultant from Bain studying her MBA yeah. and she said she went in with that notion that I'll work you know full-time and then you know I'll do volunteering on the side yeah. and then she got like halfway through the year and was like this is too much I can't balance it yeah, so yeah. is it still possible to do that? I don't know, right? Like, I think, I don't know. For example, even at Give Directly, we have someone who helps us with part-time work for development, and she's really committed. Like, mm -hmm. she will work very late into the night, every night, and she will work on weekends to help us yeah. make things happen. Yeah. And so, like, I know for a fact, like, if you really, truly care about it, you can make it happen. Mm -hmm. But it is, like, so enormously difficult. Like, for me personally, 
Like, I don't know if I can hit that balance of having a full-time job and actually being a meaningful contributor to a nonprofit yeah. and to, like, do executing on, like, a lot of the other priorities and responsibilities I have in my life, like, mm-hmm. in a high-quality way. I just, like, don't think I can do that. And so, like, yeah. I think it's possible. I think it's a lot less likely and a lot harder than most people think. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I think that's, like, the little nuance there. Okay, I have two quick follow-up questions from that. Um, in terms of especially in the impact space, you mentioned she was working late into the night. I'm sure, obviously the startup world is notorious for um, hard work, but uh, in terms of impact space in particular, if you're really passionate about something, often you can get so involved in the work and push yourself to the point of burnout. Um, have you experienced that or have you... Yeah, I think it's just thinking about things in like a medium to long-term way yeah. as well, right? Like A, understanding yourself and like seeing like, hey, how hard do you think you can reasonably go um, in like a sustainable way? Mm-hmm. Because even at Give Directly, like you don't want to, we don't want to work someone so hard that they're burning out in a year, mm-hmm. right? You want to be thinking like, hey, you want this person to get a lot of output out, but like mm-hmm. taking care of themselves so that they can stay like connected to us in a medium to long-term way and like be able to bring a lot of value over a longer period of time. And so, and I think that's a win for individuals and that's a win for the organization. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's like, it, for, for people like ourselves, it's on ourselves to understand like, hey, how hard can I go? And like, how mm-hmm. can I make sure I am taking care of myself? And oftentimes it's easier, I really start to believe this more and more, it's easier to keep working um, and it's harder to like actually like take care of yourself and be able to like disconnect from work. But like being able to do that and having the discipline to do that is like really important to, to like, keep staying involved and like maintaining like your levels of performance over a long period of time. Yeah. And is there a way to attract, um, this is kind of unrelated, but young people or talent more specifically into the impact space, um, given like constraints in terms of like funding, I'm not sure if like you can truly match salaries, then there's, you know, stuff about brand names where you worked at another firm, it's, you know, going to last you for life. Um, again, the skills argument that people put out there, how can we get the best minds? working on the most important problem. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think it starts with like more organizations that are like holding themselves to the quality and performance bar like an organization like GiveDirectly, right? Is like you are operating at the like highest levels, you're holding yourself to a very high level of accountability. And I think there's a huge opportunity there because A, you're working in the impact space, but B, you're also learning the skills from other folks who are like really, really intelligent. It's not this like slow moving bureaucratic organization. Like the people I work with and report to are like, right, are like our two co-founders are Harvard PhDs. One of them was like a, was very senior at McKinsey for a long period of time. Like a bunch of people I work with are folks from like companies like Bridgewater, McKinsey, like the consulting companies and so they're people from private sector backgrounds but they're coming to work on a problem they really care about and I'm learning a lot from them right and so it's like you can create this like um, loop or this cycle where like people are pushing each other to be better people um, you're working on a problem you care about and you're also like growing and so I think that's like the piece that really needs to open up is like more organizations that are built the way we are for the impact space I think is going to lead to more talent coming into the space. Quickly, I want to ask a few questions that... Sure. Um, I just have a couple of minutes left. Sure, 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 sure. Um, why not microfinance loans? Yeah, so there's just a lot of data that shows that like microfinance doesn't work. Okay. Um, and so, again, can point you to a few like different directions there, but like there's evidence that shows that like microfinance is not as effective as, as kind of giving directly. Cool, cool, cool. Um, and if you would go back to your undergrad, mm-hmm. would you do anything differently? That's a tough one. Um, would I do anything differently? I 
Look, I think I, th- I think there's like an element of like hindsight is twenty twenty, mm-hmm. um, right? And so like there's some obvious answers, which is like I would have like really pushed myself to reflect like harder and earlier and like really think about what I wanted versus not. But also acknowledging, look, it's like the natural way of like life is to like have certain beliefs and then try and chase them and then see and then like you learn from your mistakes and you learn from that. Um, but yeah, like a couple of things I would have done is like push myself to like reflect harder and more thoughtfully about like what I wanted, expose myself more to like the impact world and the social impact like yeah. space, right? And like seeing more organizations and talk to more folks. Like I didn't know of organizations like give directly. I had this like preconceived notion that like nonprofits were slow and bureaucratic and like not an attractive place to work and like didn't realize that that's like not actually true, right? If you look hard enough, you can find these like really great organizations. And so um, like just being a little bit more open-minded in that regard, I think, I think would, have, would have gone a little bit of a ways there too. Um, and last question, uh, do you have any other things you want to add to, so young people passionate about making a difference, um, anything you want to tell them? And lastly, I know you mentioned um, 80,000 hours and a few authors, but uh, any other books, resources, films you would recommend for young people who want to make a difference? Sure. I think on the anything uh, to add, I think just remembering, like, and I was remembering this the other day, like, there are still so many problems in our world, mm. right? And, like, yes, we're making, like, prog- meaningful progress across a bunch of different dimensions, but there are so many, like, huge and fundamental problems that are still wrong with this world, right? You go, if you go to, like, certain parts of East Africa or Southeast Asia, like, a, duff- a bunch of different places, yeah. and you see that people are living, like, much more difficult lives and are deprived of, like, basic needs and resources in, like, a world that we still live in today. Yeah. And, like, that is, like, so important to remember, Right, like there's still so many problems for us to solve, and so like I don't know, continuing people to like pushing people to like continue believing, um, and realizing that they can do something about this. Right, like the power of one, like you can get involved, you can like make an impact, and like don't lose that belief because like that piece is like so important mm-hmm. to like making the world a slightly better place. And so like, which like really attaches that, and also don't get don't get discouraged like don't get pulled away by herd mentality like try and like figure out what you really want and then like make it happen um because the opportunities are there and the and and and, you know you can find the right places where you can also get everything else that you want out of it um so that and then research and books i don't have anything coming off the top of my mind right now but um happy to send some stuff over to you as well yeah thanks so much yeah yeah of course thanks man i appreciate it man Thank you so much for listening to our fourth episode of Lantern. That again was Yash Katari, and you can find more information on Give Directly and their mission to reshape international giving in the show notes, as well as all the books, authors, articles, and particularly research um, that Yash mentioned uh, as well in the show notes. If you did enjoy the show, please, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us grow and share these amazing conversations with more and more people across the globe. If you can't wait for more, episode five will be live across all our platforms next Sunday. That's on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up to date with um, the latest content we're pushing out on Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Twitter, which are all under Project Lantern underscore, all one word, Project Lantern underscore, and of course on our website, projectlantern.com.au. If you have any feedback for us or just want to say hi, you can reach out to us anytime on our social media or via email at hello at projectlantern.com.au. Again, we're really excited to have you on this journey in creating a global launchpad for youth at social impact. Until next time, stay awesome.